Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Feels good to say Ephesians chapter 3. I don't know. There's something about that. This morning we are continuing our study through the book of Ephesians. And today we're going to be looking at part one of a message I've titled Paul's Response to the Mystery. Our main text is Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21, in this kind of couple parts of a, of a study that we're going to be doing. But in part one, we're going to be focusing on verses 14 through the beginning of verse 17. And just to help keep the context, we're going to read all the way from chapter one, verse one. No, I'm just kidding. 20 minutes later, we'll make it to where we're at. No. Uh, We're going to start reading in verse 1 of chapter 3, and we're just going to read through what we studied last week, okay? So, Ephesians 3, verse 1, if you don't have a Bible, grab one off the table, follow along. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me, by the effective working of his power. Verse 8, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. So, as we just read, Last week in our study, Paul gave insights about the mystery revealed to him by God. It came by revelation. Someone didn't teach Paul this. God divinely just deposited, deposited it into Paul's mind and heart. He, he grasped it. He knew what was going on. He understood something that was hidden in past ages, past generations, not to be found anywhere in Old Testament scriptures that had now been revealed by the Holy Spirit to the holy apostles and prophets in the church age. And this mystery, Paul spells it out for us, is that believing Gentiles would be fellow heirs with believing Jews. They'd be of the same body. They'd be one together, united together in one. And partakers of the promises of God in Christ through the gospel. 
not, hey, Gentiles, proselytize and become Jews. You men get circumcised, become Jews. You get on board with a sacrificial system and become a Jew in that sort of way. Not that. But now the grace of God, saving Jews, saving Gentiles, making them one, making them fellow heirs, which means they share the same inheritance, and all the promises that come along with being an heir, now belonging to Gentile believers. Not Gentiles replacing Jews, not the church now replacing Israel, but God just doing something new in this church age. A new people, a new humanity, new creations in Christ Jesus. And, and no one saw that coming. No, no one would have gotten, gone, yeah, I can kind of get a hint of that. I kind of got, maybe God was going to do that. It's like he's going, no, you could never have seen it. It was hidden. And now God has revealed what, hid, what previously he kept kind of held back in himself. And now... Jews and Gentiles, because of Jesus, we have this boldness, we have this access, we have this confidence through faith in Jesus. Paul's kind of spelling that all out in our study last week, and then Paul kind of going back and giving this word of encouragement as likely these Ephesian believers would have felt a certain way about Paul's imprisonment as we looked at last week that, you know what? Maybe we were responsible. It was our fault. It was our guy who was blamed. He was the one that the Jews thought that came into the temple courts where he didn't belong. And Paul's like, guys, God's bringing about a glorious outcome. Yes, there's tribulation. But in the tribulation, God is accomplishing glory unto himself. And now... In the final portion of chapter 3, Paul is going to bring this heavily doctrinal half of his letter, chapters 1 through 3 to a close, by responding to the mystery that he just wrote about, a response we're going to see of prayer and of praise. Now, check out what Bible commentator Warren Wiersbe said about this section before we get into it. He said, this passage is the second of two prayers recorded in Ephesians. The first one being Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. In the first prayer, the emphasis is on enlightenment. But in this prayer, the emphasis is, emphasis is, uh, emphasis is on enablement. It is not so much a matter, not so much, I can't speak. It is not so much a matter of knowing as being laying our hands on what God has for us, and by faith, making it a vital part of our lives. It is worth noting that both of these prayers, as well as the other prison prayers, Philippians 1 and Colossians 1, deal with the spiritual condition of the inner man and not the material needs of the body. Certainly, he says, it is not wrong to pray for physical and material needs, but the emphasis in these petitions is on the spiritual Paul knew that if the inner man is what he ought to be, the outer man will be take, taken care of in due time. 
Too many of our prayers focus only on physical and material needs and fail to lay hold of the deeper inner needs of the heart. It would do good, uh, it would do us good to use these prison prayers as our own and ask God to help us in our inner person. That is where the greatest needs are. And with all that context in mind, let's get into the first portion of our verses here, verses 14 and 15. Paul says, For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. For this reason. So on account of all that Paul was just writing about regarding the mystery, in light of all that, his response now was to pray. And specifically to pray for the Ephesian believers and by extension praying for all believers, including us Today And in light of the fact that Paul is experiencing a season of tribulation, a season of trouble and difficulty where he's a prisoner and being kept in chains in Rome, I don't know about you, but I'm challenged by the fact that Paul is not praying here for his own deliverance. He's not praying that God strikes down Caesar Nero. He's not praying for God to strike down the guards who were assigned to him. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But his mind is on others, on these Ephesian believers, praying that God would do an amazing work in them. But but check out what John Stott said about this. He wrote, what reason is in his mind? What is it that moves him to pray? Surely it is both the reconciling work of Christ and his own understanding of it by special revelation. These are the convictions which undergird his prayer. This being so, an important principle of prayer emerges. The basis of Paul's prayer was his knowledge of God's purpose. It was because of what God had done in Christ and revealed to Paul that he had the necessary warrant to pray. For the indispensable prelude to all petition is the revelation of God's will. We have no authority to pray for anything which God has not revealed to be his will. That is why Bible reading and prayer should always go together. For it is in Scripture that God has disclosed his will, and it is in prayer that we ask him to do it. I love that. And that insight just reminds us how important it is that we know Scripture, how powerful it is when we pray Scripture. You ever prayed and just felt like, I hope? I hope this is something that God's on board with? And you know what? Sometimes we don't know. We don't, maybe there's a, something that's not specifically spelled out for us in Scripture, a situation that we're facing, and it's not, there's not something explicitly found in Scripture that we could go, this is God's will regarding this specific thing. That doesn't mean we can't pray for that. But guys, our confidence level exponentially increases when God has already told us that he's wanting to do something. God, you you already said that you want to do it, so 
I don't have to come to you in timidity like, I don't know if you really want to do this, Lord. If he's made a promise, why would we come with sort of this awkwardness to him? If he said, hey, I want to do this, this is my will, my desire, then we can come with the sort of boldness and confidence to go, not in a demanding way, but God, you've, you've said this, Lord, would you do it? Would you do it? And then to leave it with him, because he's the one, ultimately, we don't know. Sometimes it's something where he's going, it's my will, but w- is it his timing? Is this the way that he wants to accomplish it? Does God want to do some weird plan F that we weren't even thinking about? And he just bypasses the plans A through E that we kind of dreamt up in our minds and thought, okay, God, you can do that. And then you can move in this way. And here, God, let me give you this other option and this other thing and this other. And then he's like, but I don't like any of those. God had revealed certain things about his will to Paul, and Paul then had the confidence to pray for those things. Again, this is now the second time in this letter that Paul is going to share what he was praying, and with this bringing the doctrinal section of this letter to a close, it's super fitting that Paul ends this section with a prayer, and at the end of that prayer gives a doxology, an expression of praise and worship to God. Paul didn't come to the end of all this deep theology and just go, we got it all together now. Thanks, Lord. We'll take it from here. No, he's like, all I can do is just praise you, God, that you have said all these things about yourself. You've said all these things about us, who we are in Christ, what you've done. My head's not puffed up with some like, you know, spiritual pride now because all of this revelation has been deposited to me or now we have all this theological foundation. Look at what we've got. Look at how strong we are. He's going, God, I just praise you. I just worship you, Lord. And that is, the, that is where theology and doctrine should always lead. It should always lead to prayer and to praise. Always, that's, that's always where it's supposed to go. Because as we're reminded or we come to realize things that God's done or said about himself or said about us, the only proper next step in that progression is just to go, God, you are so good. I can't believe you would do this for me. I can't believe how amazing you are, and yet you are God. I can't help but worship you. But notice Paul bowed, he bended his knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that bowing, that bending of the knees, being a posture of humility and submission and earnestness. This actually was not the common prayer posture of the day for a Jewish person. It was actually 
to stand with your hands raised. That was the common prayer posture for the Jewish people in Paul's day. It was not to kneel. And again, and I don't think Paul's writing this like, you know, we'll say, God, I, we, we pray it. Lord, we bow our hearts. We bend our knees. I don't know that any of us actually got on our knees while we were singing that song. Sometimes we'll say something because there's sort of an inner, there's an inner thing that's happening that kind of matches that. But I don't believe that's what was going on with Paul. I don't think he's writing them saying, I bow my knees, but he actually didn't do it. I think as Paul is under house arrest and he's chained to these guards, Paul literally got on his knees. He didn't care what the guards thought of him. He didn't care if that made it uncomfortable for him with the chains and all that. He gets on his knees and earnestly, humbly prayed for these believers. And there are times in our lives, and there's so many different postures to prayer, so this isn't like now the model. You, if you're going to pray, you have to be on your knees because we see people on their faces, we pe- see people standing, we see people kneeling, lying down. But there is something, though, at times where God might impress upon our hearts, you know what, get on your knees. There's just maybe, and this happens for me sometimes, well, just, just sense, there, and there's maybe just something God's doing, there's an earnestness, and I just know, God, I, I need to bow my knee before you. But regardless of the posture, God's looking at the posture of our hearts. We can bend our knee, but inwardly we're, we're actually lift up and lifted up in pride. So not ultimately about the physical posture of our bodies, as much as what God is looking for in us inwardly before him. But he says, from whom bows his knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Paul has already pointed out in this letter how Jesus' people, his church, has been made part of God's kingdom, made part of God's family, his household, made part of God's temple, and then pointed out how the church is a mystery, once hidden but now revealed. But as he responds to all that now in prayer, his mind comes back to the truth, back to that spiritual reality that we, as the church, are a family. We're a family. And, you know, I I think this dynamic of the church as a family needs, if it's drifted at all in our minds, and we've kind of substituted that with some other sort of mental image. When we think about the church, we need to come back to this place. We need to come back to this place that the church is a family. It's a family. And there is something different. When you are a part of something that is truly a family, there is love, there's a belonging, there's a welcoming in, there's a wrapping of arms in, like bringing you in near. There is a warmth 
to that sort of environment, to that sort of uh, gathering of people, called out people, that just becomes so much more special. Because people are looking for belonging. They're looking for belonging. Not everybody grew up with a great family. Some people grew up wishing they had a different family and they looked at a friend or somebody else and they're like, man, I wish I had that. I wish I had their parents or I wish I just had a parent. And to know that the church in the eyes of God, he's going, this is, this is family. And for us to really embrace that and, and, and walk that thing out, because if we're family, then how we see each other, how we engage with each other, how we, how we minister to one another, how we love each other and forgive and all these sorts of things is going to be so much more different than what we see in a club, some sort of hobby group thing. Like, this is, this is supposed to be different. The church is holy. It is set apart. It is unique in so many different ways. But one of those predominant ways is this. The church is a family. It's a family. We see that the church as a family is bigger than just what God was doing and had created in Ephesus. That the whole family of the church can be found both in heaven, these are believers who have already died in faith and are with Jesus now, and they can be found on earth, those who are alive and remain on this side of heaven, which is comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, and we see that the church, this family that we've been made a part of, bears the name of our Father. We share the same family name because we, as disciples of Jesus Christ, all have the same Father who has brought us into His family where we now belong to Him. So we've got a new family, a new name, and a new identity. Anybody not like your name growing up? You're like, man, why did my parents name me that? That was me with my middle name. I hated that thing. It just, and I couldn't hate it that much because it was my grandpa's first name. So, like, you feel bad not liking your name because you're like, well, I was named after my grandpa. But to be bearing the name of our Heavenly Father means that God has given us a new belonging, a new identity. There's something new that he's done with us. That you know what? No matter what our physical family looked like, no matter what sense of belonging we did or did not have here, that God has done something new with us that we can really grab a hold of and celebrate and appreciate because this name, it's the name above every other name. It's the greatest name. And we get to be a part of that. We belong to that. To the one true God. So Paul's sort of 
introduce this part of his prayer. But let's look at the contents of Paul's prayer-filled response in verses 16 through 19, and then we'll, we'll kind of backtrack and, and dig into part of it. So, verse 16, Paul prayed to the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. He says, in verse 16, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. After putting the spotlight of his prayer on the Lord in verses 14 and 15, we, we see Paul now begin to give us insight into what he prayed, what he asked the Father to do in their lives and by way of that, our lives. And it's important for us to see from verses 16 through 19 that there are four parts to Paul's prayer that each part builds upon the others before it which is seen in how Paul uses the word that when beginning to pray for each thing. His prayer begins with him asking that he, the Father, would grant you to be strengthened with might. Then he builds upon that by asking that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And he builds upon that by asking that, that you be being rooted and grounded in love, able to, to comprehend and know the love of Christ. And then finally, he builds on that by asking that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Today, we're just going to look at the first two parts of Paul's prayer. So, look again at verse 16. He prayed that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Now, Paul understood that the Father has riches, wealth, and abundance of glory sourced in himself. And because he understood that the Father's glory was abundant, he had no problems with nor any timidity about asking the Father to grant, to give from those riches, that abundance. But I want us to see today and, and next week as we make our way through to verse 19, that Paul doesn't reference the riches of the Father's glory or ask the Father to give out from those riches in any sort of physical or monetary way. Paul isn't praying Show us the money. <laughs> He's not praying, Father, you have riches of glory, so give us, give us riches in our bank accounts and in our wallets, purses. No, the things Paul is praying for here are spiritual. They're internal, and they have to do with our relationship with our Heavenly Father. So what did Paul ask the Father to do according to the riches of his glory? Well, he asked him to grant, 
to give, to cause, to, to bring about in the believers, including us, that we would be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. That word strengthened means to gain strength, to become strong, to overcome resistance with what? Paul says, might. And Paul uses the word dunamis there when writing might, which as I mentioned last week is where we get our English word dynamite. It's also translated power, like when Jesus said we would, his disciples would receive power to be his witnesses in this world. And this strengthening with might comes to us through the Holy Spirit. He's the source of it. And Paul prays that this strengthening with might will take place in the inner man or the inner woman. And as I consider what Paul prays in these verses, it struck me how incredible each of the things Paul prays here are. Like almost too good to be true or too immense to be possible. Like knowing the the breadth and length and depth and height of the love of God which passes all knowledge. Doesn't that seem... Just like a little too much. The breath and length, depth and height. It, when he says passes knowledge, we do understand that that means it's beyond our knowledge. So like all of this just seems so grandiose. Like it's such a big prayer. Like Paul just so like easily prays it. Like, I have a, you know, we might have a hard time asking God for something really simple. It's like daily provision. And Paul's like, God, just this love that surpasses all of our knowledge, it's so big and wide and high and tall, all these things, just help them to understand it, Lord. And they receive it. They'd be filled with all the fullness of God. Like, that is big. And yet Paul prayed big prayers. Paul is praying these things because this is God's desire of what he's wanting to do and see happen in each of our lives. Paul's praying it because God desired it. And to start this chain of incredible and immense prayers, he asked that the Father would do a strengthening work by his divine power, the the supernatural power of the Spirit of God at work inside of us. Oftentimes, I, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, Pray for God to empower me and do things through me. And and while that's a good thing to pray, Paul's asking God to do something in the inward part, the inward part of us, and to start his strengthening and might there. Um, This comes natural to us, but we just, our default is the natural. Our default is the physical. We prioritize the physical. If there's a strengthening that we start to think about, 
Oftentimes that is a physical sort of strengthening. Or I'm going to eat, which will provide strength. I'm going to exercise, that will provide strength. I'm going to do this, and there'll, there'll be some, I'll see some sort of physical outward benefit to it, or it's going to help my physical health. And yet God is going, okay, but what about inwardly? You know that we can externally have all the strength and all the might. We can be like one of those, if you've ever, I like, I don't watch them that often, but like the world's strongest man competitions. It's just absurd, right? Seeing somebody like squatting 2,000 pounds or something, you're like, how... How did you not just like turn into jelly? Like I just don't, I don't know how every body in your bone didn't just like break and you just became this weird blob. But like, but to know that like you can have all of that and there be like inwardly like just you could be a fragile, broken, weak individual when it comes to who you really are before the Lord. And if that's the case, what does all the physical strength matter? And, and we like shows of strength. Like even, it, even if we don't, if we're not into like working out, which is all great. But like there's other things that we like will pride ourselves on. Like, man, yeah, I was able to like, you know, I did this. I jumped up there. I, I was able to like accomplish this thing in my house. I put this thing together. I did that. And it's like, there's like, oh, cool. But God is looking at our lives and he's going, but what about that inner person? The real you. God cares about the real us who we are inwardly, the inner man or woman that no one else sees or can see, and he wants us to gain real spiritual strength inwardly with a dynamic, dynamite, supernatural power of his spirit. So God sees us where we are now. He sees where we're strong and where we're weak, where we're experiencing victory and where we're experiencing failure, where we're encouraged and where we're discouraged, where things are going well and where things need to be changed in us. And he wants to do his supernatural work of strengthening by his spirit at the very heart of where all those things are taking place within us. And I'll just give you a few reasons why that is. This isn't a limit. This is like, there's, there's many things that we could say. But first, it's because God wants us to be fully yielded and surrendered to him, and he wants every bit of us for himself. If his spirit is working in this sort of way in each of us inwardly, he's going to have both our attention and our affection. 
we're going to be in tune with him. We're going to be focused fully on him. We're going to be filled with gratitude, with worship towards him for what he's doing in us. Second, because our outward life flows from who we are inwardly. If we consider this part of Paul's prayer as being God doing a strengthening with might inwardly, as as him strengthening and reinforcing our inward spiritual health where the state of our heart is in the right place before him, we are going to be those vessels of honor in his house that he can take and fill and use for his kingdom and glory and purposes. But if things aren't right inwardly, we will find ourselves in danger of walking in his hypocrisy, dishonoring the Lord, making ourselves really unusable. God wants to strengthen and and give might inwardly because what he does inwardly will always work itself outwardly in our lives. And then third, well, because this sort of inward spiritual strengthening with might is far superior and infinitely more important than any sort of outward strengthening with might physically. One big reason for this is because outward physical strength won't last. And to be, you know, if we're honest enough with ourselves, may never really be present. Like we may not ever be that person where we're just like, yeah, I'm looking at how, how great things are going outwardly in my life. There, there's people who, you know, for their whole lives, that can never be true for them because of a disability or whatever might be going on. And Paul kind of would speak into this in what he wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 4.16. He said, therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. We don't like to think about the perishing part. But from the moment we are born, we're dying. And there comes a point where like cells aren't, you know, new cells aren't being produced more than the ones that are dying. And it's like, okay. And we feel that, right? Don't we? As we get older, we're like, oh man, I think more cells, more of these good cells aren't being produced like they once were. Like, <laughs> you can feel the effects of that outward man that's kind of like starts to like, there's a perishing that happens and we're like, oh no. You felt real good for a long time. You're like, I feel young. And then you're like, you don't tell people that you feel young anymore. You're like, I feel my age? I don't know. I feel 20 years older than I am? <laughs> and I love that Paul goes, we don't lose heart. How can we not lose heart when we, <laughs> when we hear that? Your outward man is perishing. I'm like, well, that's not very encouraging, Paul. Thanks a lot. No, that we don't lose heart. Why? Because the inward man is being renewed day by day. God's doing something else 
And it might not be in the outward things. It's likely, as we get older, for sure not going to be. While our outward physical us is perishing, we can have courage. We can take heart knowing our inward spiritual us is being renewed daily and being strengthened continually. And this is a big deal. You know, inward spiritual strength and might is just as much for someone who is a quadriplegic or deals with some sort of physical or mental disability or or who has a disease or facing some sort of illness or who is blind or deaf or even born with no limbs as it is for someone who doesn't have any of those things going on with them. This is not like, well, if you're strong, this verse is for you. If you're able-bodied, this verse is for you. If you've got everything all put together and you've got the right diet and all those things, then this is for you. He's going like, it doesn't matter what you have going on with you physically or even mentally. This verse, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, is for you. Paul's prayer and God's desire here is not limited by any physical or mental limitation someone might experience. The only limitation is whether someone belongs to the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ or not. If we're in the family of God, this is the desire of God for you and me. Strengthened with might. So we're, you know, sometimes we, we kind of like, we'll kind of like stamp down the weakness. Like we know it's in there, but like I don't want to think about it. I don't want to face it. I don't want to admit it. And God's going, but I see it. I see it. It's not being hidden from me. You can try to ignore it. I see it. And he doesn't despise us for the weakness. You know what he does? He goes, I see it, and I want to do something about it. I want to bring a strength in the inner part of you where my supernatural power works. And it works. The Spirit of God works. He is amazing at it. He knows how to take something that's a weakness, that's a failure, an area of brokenness, and he can, he can build that thing up. He, he can fill in the cracks. He can... Make a foundation where there's not one. He can heal the brokenness. He can do something there. Whatever that thing is, he wants to do it. And I don't know about you, but I think sometimes God's just going like, why don't you ask me to do it? Ask me to do it. Instead of ignoring it, instead of trying to like, just, you know, like I just don't want to deal. I don't want to admit that it's there I don't want to admit that I have a weakness in me or some area that's not strong. It's not changing anything. I think the prayer of Paul is like God going like, why don't you ask me? Paul's asking, why don't you ask? Ask. He's got an abundance of glory, riches, wealth. 
He's got an abundance of power and supply that's inexhaustible. And he's going, but I want to do something in you. But he builds on that. In verse 16, by praying that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Remember, Paul's writing to people who are saved. They had the Holy Spirit indwelling them already. This is something that happens at the moment of salvation. But now with that prayer for strengthening with power through his spirit and our inner being, he now builds on that by praying that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. So what's the deal? Did Paul forget all of a sudden that they were believers? That Jesus was already there? No. That word dwell means to reside or inhabit. Or we could say settle in and be at home. Paul's not praying for another indwelling of the Spirit to happen because that's not possible. But that more and more as our faith, our trust, our confidence is in Jesus, that Jesus would settle into and inhabit every bit of our hearts where he's completely at home there. Again, Paul is praying this because God is desiring it. His desire is that Jesus would be completely at home, completely settled in, completely inhabiting every square inch of our hearts, our lives. So why would he pray this? Well, I think one of the reasons is because some saints, saved people, could be us today, may treat him more like a guest than as a permanent resident. Some may give him the key to the front door to their heart. They they knew he was standing at the door of their heart knocking. They let him in, but then they kept a bunch of rooms locked. Some may welcome him and tell him to make himself at home, but then keep the plastic on all the furniture and ask him to take his feet off the coffee table. You feel at home? Not really. I'm in your home. There's a difference, right, between being in a home and feeling at home. Some may welcome him in but then fight against, resist any desire of Jesus to make changes to the inside of the home, to clean the home, to do some renovating, knock down some walls, so that the inside of the home, our hearts truly is a place where he is fully at home. I like what Bible commentator William MacDonald said about this. He wrote, this is the result of the Spirit's invigoration. We are strengthened in order that Christ may dwell in our hearts. Actually, the Lord Jesus takes up his personal residence in a believer at the time of conversion, John 14, 23 and Revelation 3, 20. But that is not the subject of this prayer. Here, it is not a question of his being in the believer, but rather of his feeling at home there. 
He is a permanent resident in every saved person, but this is a request that he might have full access to every room and closet, that he might not be grieved by sinful words, thoughts, motives, and deeds, that he might enjoy unbroken fellowship with the believer. The Christian heart, he says, thus becomes the home of Christ, the place where he loves to be, like the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany. The heart, of course, means the center of the spiritual life. It controls every aspect of behavior. In effect, the apostle prays that the lordship of Christ might extend to the books we read, the work we do, the food we eat, the money we spend, the words we speak. In short, the minutest details of our lives. We enter into the enjoyment of his indwelling through faith. This involves constant dependence on him, constant surrender to him, and constant recognition of his at-home-ness. Guys, this first half of Paul's prayer makes it clear that each of us are not just names to the Lord in the book of life. Well, I got him there. Look at, look at this book. They're in there. Just a bunch of names. Or as a business would look at customers and go, oh, they're a number. They're helping our profit margin. No, he sees us as people that he wants to make his dwelling in. That he wants to feel completely at home in where he has every bit of us. And with that, cause his spirit to do something inside of us spiritually in the way of strengthening, making us strong with his might, his power. Again, Paul prayed for it. Why? Because our God desires to do it. And there's so much more he wants to do, as we'll see in our study next week. I'm going to have Julian come back up. In closing, you know, the Father is less concerned with the posture of our bodies, having our knees bowed in prayer, than he is with the posture of our hearts. Are we humble before him? Are we submitted to him? Are we seeking him earnestly? Or is it just sort of half-hearted? Do we need to be filled with confidence towards the Lord? Not just that, if, if God sees his church as a family and he does, so should we. I think these are good things for us to be praying for. God, make this place truly a family. That when people come, that the warmth, the love of Jesus, that family sort of environment, God, you would do something through that in the lives of your people. And we need to be confident regarding these things Paul has prayed and pray them for others and ourselves. That he would strengthen with might through his spirit in the inner man, the inner woman, dwell in our hearts through faith that his power would be at work in the depths of ours and others' spiritual lives that ours and others' hearts would truly be a place where Jesus feels at home and where he has every bit of us, and I think with that, it's just like, okay, Lord, 
Is my heart a place where you feel at home? You're in there, but do you really feel at home there? Do I need to rip the plastic off the furniture? Is there stuff that I've kept locked because I don't want you in there? I don't want you touching There's stuff where I'm going, God, don't knock that over. Don't throw that item out. Guys, if there's anything, anything that would cause Jesus to not feel at home, if there's anything that would hinder or damage that sweetness of fellowship with Jesus that he desires to have with us, that we would just even, maybe during this first song, as Julian's leading us, to just have a moment before the Lord where we're, we're asking the Lord, is there stuff? Is there areas of weakness, Lord, that I've been ignoring? Is there stuff that I've been excusing? Lord, strengthen me inwardly. Your power at work inwardly. Lord, you, Jesus, dwelling in my heart in a way where you really do feel at home and you have every bit of me. And these are good things to pray. These are good things to ask the Lord. But I think on the, on the other side of it, what a sweet thing to know that Jesus wants our hearts to be his home. Not just a convicting word of like, well, what's keeping him from feeling at home? But the reality that if we put our faith in Jesus, our heart is his home. To know that if there's areas of weakness or struggle or brokenness or failure or whatever's in there, that he's not going, well, I guess you're just stuck with that. But that he's going, I want to work in you. I want to work in you. And what an encouraging thing. That we can take heart knowing that while stuff is perishing, there's an inward renewal. There's an inward strengthening. There's inward power by his spirit that he's going, I want to do that today. I want to do that in you today. Or maybe you're thinking about somebody else and you're going, Lord, do that in them. But if you've come this morning and you don't know Jesus personally, he's at the door. And the only reason he's not in your heart, not your heart's not a home, is because you've not let him in. Not because he doesn't want to be in there. I'm going to give an opportunity for that now. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. God, we do, Lord. Maybe not physically. Maybe for some of us this morning, we're going, man, I need to get on my knees some more. Actually, physically. Lord, to humble myself in that sort of way. But God, inwardly, that the posture of our hearts, God, we would come in humility. Lord, with submission. God, just recognizing your authority, your power, your goodness. And Lord, seeking you eagerly, earnestly, God. Lord, thank you that you've made us part of your family. We get to be family together. Lord, what an amazing privilege. What an amazing honor. Lord, what an amazing blessing. 
Lord, by your spirit, God, make this even more so. Truly a family of believers. And Lord, you see us. Lord, you know areas, God, where inwardly, Lord, we're needing that strengthening. We need, Lord, your might, your power, your spirit at work. God, would you, even now, Lord, do a work there, God, in us. Maybe, Lord, we're thinking about somebody else and we're thinking about, Lord, areas of struggle or, or weakness or failure or brokenness and we're going, God, Lord, do a work in them. But Lord, thank you that you want our hearts to truly be a home that you feel at home in and settled into. Lord, if there's anything, God, that's damaging that closeness of fellowship, if there's anything, Lord, where we've kept a, a closet locked, a room locked away, God, would we just give you full access? Lord, would we surrender every bit of ourselves to you? But Lord, thank you that you've made our hearts your home. But, but Lord, if anyone's here and they don't know you personally, they've never repented of their sin, they've never humbled themselves before you and, and asked you, Lord, to forgive them and to save them. God, would you even now be speaking, Lord, to that person, to those people? Lord, that even now you're knocking, God, wanting to be let in. You want them, Lord. You desire them. You love them. You, you gave your life for them, just as you did for us. If that's anybody this morning, you're going, that's me. I want Jesus' salvation. I want his forgiveness. I want my heart to be his home. Would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? If that's anybody this morning, that, that wasn't the Lord trying to get somebody's attention. If that's you, and you're going, I, I need Jesus. Would you raise your hand? Lord, you see every heart. You know every need. God, meet each one, Lord, whether, whether each person is already saved and, Lord, you're, they're just, there's a deepening work that, God, you're wanting to do. Or maybe, Lord, somebody just, God, they've, they're reluctant to make that decision, Lord, or, or maybe they want to make that decision, that, Lord, that they would cry out to you, Lord. They'd humble themselves, Lord, God. They'd confess their sin. Lord, they'd repent of it. They'd turn away from it, Lord. They surrender their lives to your lordship. Believing, Jesus, that you died on the cross, that you rose from the grave. Lord, would you save? Lord, would you strengthen? And God, would you settle in? Settle in, Lord, today. God, would we have even closer fellowship with you? And Lord, we want to respond to these things, Lord, with these songs of praise, taking the communion elements, getting prayed for in the corner of the room, whatever it might be for us. God, we thank you. Lord, thank you, God, that you're at work. Thank you that you want to settle in and make our hearts truly your home. We praise you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.